Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the company Hans of Odin. And before we jump into the main show, I do have to do our little plugs, I guess, before. It's for our Patreon. It's Patreon for slash Nordic Mythology Podcast. It's £3 a month, 10p a day. And what you get for that is you get a bonus episode every single week. You get ad-free episodes. You get early access to all the episodes. You can watch the episodes live and access the live chat. So with we have like an inception situation going on. We have the main episode, and then within that, we have the live chat where there's a bunch of other stuff going on. It's always a lot of fun and can be a little bit distracting sometimes too. Um, you also get our Discord server where we have a lovely little community of listeners over there. And the tier up from that, you get the story time episode with myself and Jonas Lorenzen, where we've just started reading through Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. So there's a there's a bunch of stuff on there. And and more than anything, it just helps us keep going. It helps us keep the people who help the show behind the scenes employed uh, because there's a lot more to this than just me. You know, we have an editor, we have a social media person, we have uh, advertising, booking, and it's all part of one big machine and the patron is the main funding source behind it we don't have any anything else so if you can pop over into there and just take a look it's again it's patreon for slash Nordic mythology podcast and it is just three pound a month and if you can't support financially which not everyone can even just a share on instagram share on facebook it helps people find the podcast as well as leaving a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts um but with all that said we have to jump into the main show this i i'm really excited for this uh it's an extension i guess or another week of spooky season so we're doing a few back-to-back episodes of the spooky side of Nordic mythology um and this one's going to be on monsters and i'm joined by rebecca merkelbach yes I think everybody's used to me just saying the guest name with a question mark because you, as you probably know, they're not the easiest names to say in this sphere. Yeah, I mean, um, at least I'm not from Scandinavia or Iceland, at least, um, where where names are even more complicated mm-hmm. than weird German surnames. Yeah, I, I, my problem is I just never want to offend anyone, so Absolutely. I just never back myself. Even though I asked right before. How do I pronounce it? And I say it over and over in my head. As soon as it comes to saying it like live with that, I know it's going to be recorded. I just panic and just go and just put like an affliction on the end of like, maybe it's this. <laughs> it was definitely that. Merkelbach is, is correct. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's really, it's really exciting to be here today. Uh, can you just let people know who you are, what you do? I guess why you're here effectively. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm assistant professor of Old Norse Icelandic Studies at the University of Tübingen in southern Germany. Um, I did my PhD on monsters in the Icelandic sagas. Um, so I guess that that is reason for me to be here. Um, I've worked on the paranormal, a bunch on monsters, um, different different types of monsters, especially in saga literature. Um, and most recently, I just finished my second book, actually, which is um, going to be forthcoming next year on the so-called post-classical sagas of Icelanders. Um, and there's a, a bunch of stuff on the paranormal and that and on story worlds and all sorts of exciting, fantastic stuff. So perfect for this time of year. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I love anything spooky and horror-related that's 
right up my alley. So whenever I get a chance to kind of learn more about the the darker side of the world, I guess it's I'm always going to jump at it. It is. I mean, I have to I have to say this now because people will be shocked by it. I'm probably the only person who works on monsters who doesn't watch horror movies and doesn't really, oh, really? enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, I know. Um, oh. I'm I'm very sensitive, uh, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I I don't I don't watch horror at all, and I'm not really into that. But monsters in Old Norse are cool, um, and I I love working on them. And for some reason, they haven't haunted me into my dreams yet. So um, that's, that's a bonus. Yeah, that's definitely good. No, I love horror films. I watched a film yesterday called Skinnamarink, which is a weird name. Um, and it was one of the most deeply disturbing films I've seen in a long time. And not much happens in this movie. It's like 110 minutes long, filmed from a child's perspective of like looking up at everything. And 90% of the film is just slow shots of blank walls. But for some reason, it's terrifying. It it just put, draws you and you don't see anybody's face in the film. It's all dialogue. There might be less than 50 words in the whole movie. Um, but for some reason, it's just ridiculously scary. It's, it's kind of built on atmosphere. So if anybody does get a chance to watch that, I would recommend it. But also I could equally understand if people hated it because there isn't much going on. But it's certainly... Um, atmospheric to say the least uh so yeah I, I i love this stuff every time i can find a new horror film especially if it's something that i haven't seen before i'm right in there so let's yeah that's my little take i guess just wanted to throw that out there because i like the film yeah no it's good to know i mean being unsettled that's kind of what draws us to these figures isn't it um to to the monstrous to the uncanny the weird um and the the unsettling effects of the monster is that's really what makes it so valuable in cultural terms. And that's what I, I was really working on, trying to draw out um, the reason why we have so many monsters in, in saga literature from the 13th and 14th centuries um, and why Icelanders were so fascinated by them. Um, because, you know, we we don't really expect that. The, the, the sagas of Icelanders are always sort of supposed to be super realistic and like, you know, focused on on social realism and on the the nitty gritty of like farmers at fisticuffs. That that's what um, Jon Jon Olafsson, um, um, an antiquarian in the set in the 18th century, um, said, "Bind the fluest owl in Icelandic um, farmers at fisticuffs." Um, and that's what the, the these sagas are supposed to be, um, according to all the scholarship. But then suddenly there's a revenant um, that's like haunting the valley and like killing all the sheep. So what's mm. that doing there? And then suddenly there's there's this berserk who, you know, goes around and and um, well, sexually assaults the women. So content warning, definitely we're going to be talking about abuse today, I'm sure, okay. um, because that's that's definitely in those stories as well. As well. So, um, yeah, like what are these figures doing there? And that's that's sort of what interested me um, coming from, from sort of monster theory backgrounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a clear definition of what would constitute a monster when it comes to like Nordic literature and the mythology? No, 
Um, okay. So we ha- th- that was the first step, right? To find a definition of it, because it's very difficult to judge what a different culture would consider monstrous. Even with mm-hmm. our own culture, there are so many different ways of of approaching monstrosity. Is it something physical? Is it a deformity? Mm-hmm. Is it something social? Is it something psychological? Is it all of those things? Um, so even with our own culture, it's very difficult to get a, a clear handle on it. Um, but then how do you do that? with a culture that's not your own and that's like 800 years in the past. Um, So that was the first step. And people have done a lot of work um, on the the concept of the troll threat in in Icelandic, Um, especially Arman Jakobsson, who's um, uh, also a trollologist, a word that I love, people who work on trolls. Um, What a title. I know, right? I always always like to introduce myself as a doctor of trollology. Um, (laughs) But so Arman um, basically looked at the the, the concept of Trek um, and all the different creatures in in Icelandic literature or Old Norse literature um, in mythology and the sagas um, that were called Trek, and he came up with a list of thirteen different creatures. So we have the undead being referred to as trolls. We have um, extremely strong or or tall or ugly people being referred to as trolls. But berserks being referred to as trolls. Magic users. Um, heathen gods, um, you know, all sorts of different creatures um, are sort of sublimated under this ha- heading, as well as those creatures that we would nowadays maybe, you know, recognize as trolls that we see in movies like Troll Hunter or um, this Norwegian movie that came out on Netflix a couple of months ago, which is called Troll, which is actually really mm-hmm. good. Um, I enjoyed that. I did yeah, like that. It's, it's really close to the sagas. It's really cool. Um, the trolls in this opposition to Christianity, that's like super, super close to texts like Barga Saga, for example. Um, but anyway, um, so Arman was looking at the the breadth of the term and, and, you know, saying that we can't really know what a troll is just from looking at the word. So in my approach to monsters, I basically substituted the term monster for, for the human subgroup of threat of trolls. Um, and I looked at um, the undead, um, magic users, and berserks, as well as those particularly strong and and tall and ugly people um, who are often outlaws. So I looked at outlaws as well um, in Gisla Saga. I think you've been talking about Gisla Saga on the mm-hmm. podcast as well recently, right? Um, so yeah, those that was sort of the subgroup, um, <clears throat> just to to basically try and understand what exactly makes these people threat trolls. Um, mm-hmm. And and how they're perceived by the people around them, because there's this theory uh, theorist called Asa Simon Mitman who said, since we can't judge what is monstrous for a different culture, we have to look at the way it impacts those around it. Um, so we have to look at the way that the monster interacts with um, its community or the community on whose margins it sort of moves, um, and from from the reaction, uh, from the impact it has on those people, that's where we can then gauge whether something is is monstrous or whether it's just problematic whether it's Mm. just you know disturbing or if it actually crosses over into something more um so i find that a particularly helpful approach because then it's not about what we think but it's about what happens within the text and what happens within the society that's depicted in the text Mm -hmm. That's, and it's that's... a lot more difficult to do that with mythology just to, to you know, because okay. that's obviously a very different kind of society that we have. It's not human. It's supernatural. It's it's divine in some ways. Um, or, you know, we have um, giants in opposition to the gods, but they're also constantly interacting. And like that interaction isn't necessarily disruptive. Um, it's 
there becomes a lot more complex. So in saga literature, this concept works, especially in the sagas of Icelanders. But in, as soon as we cross outside of that um, territory, I think it gets more more complicated. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting you said that because in my mind, I was thinking how in, if I was thinking about a monster from the mythology from Nordic mythology or from probably any mythology, I would instantly go to something non-human, um, something grotesque and that typical kind of monster type creature, like say something mythological. But if I was to think of a monster in contemporary sense, I would think of Ted Bundy or... Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer, very a very human figure, just doing monstrous acts rather than a monstrous looking thing. So when you said about it's it's kind of defined a little bit more by their actions, I would say, uh, yeah, that kind of makes perfect sense. So it really depends on the context. Um, in some sagas of, uh, in some genres or groups, maybe genres always a problematic word when it comes to medieval texts. Mm-hmm. Um, in some groups of sagas, um, they, we do have the deformed monster. We do have troll women that have like noses that hang down to their their chests and like whose lips are sort of drooling and, and they wear clothes that are so short at the back that you can see their genitals. Um, so... And that's in the in the in the legendary sagas where you know heroes go out into the wilderness and they encounter these creatures and sometimes they have sex with them and sometimes they have children with them but they always have to come back into human society and leave the giantess behind. Um, so there we do have that conceptualization, but in the sagas of Iceland is where we were in sort of you know this this pseudo realistic Icelandic past. So people from sort of the 13th 14th century looking back into their own past, um, you can't really depict that apparently so monstrosity becomes configured through humans who act in monstrous ways um so again it, it really depends on and this is where the, the idea of a story world is really useful on the story world that you're moving in like how far in the past is it how what are the the physical laws of that world what is possible what kind of stories can you tell in that world um and in mythology a lot more goes and in the legendary sagas again you can do a lot more things and 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 the monster can be much more monstrous both physically and socially than in the sagas of icelanders that are set in iceland um and whose protagonists are like the ancestors of the people who wrote these things so you really have to distinguish between um yeah the story worlds the context that we're moving in and um in that that means that in the legendary sagas you can then get creatures that are specifically bred um, by pairing like some kind of bizarre giantess with an evil king um, and and like magically enhanced. Um, and, and this creature then stalks the hero who lives to be 300 years of age. That's an, an Erlodot saga. So these things are not possible in the sagas of Icelanders that I've wrote about. Um, that's only possible in this legendary space of the, the um, sagas of old times. Mm-hmm. So do we get I guess is it possible that the troll simply was just like a description for something monstrous? Because it seems like everything can just fall under that. So within, if you have troll, I guess as like a a heading, and then we have the individual stories of the monsters, particularly that are in, I guess, human-esque. Do we, are they 
similar as in like is there like a subgenre of monsters or is it like each one is individual does that make sense so so i guess almost like would you see vampires no, like not not vampires but like something like a vampire that is one ca- characteristic mm-hmm. type of monster that appears in saga after saga after saga rather than one individual monster in each story did that yeah, make sense absolutely. i feel like i went a long way around <laughs> getting there I think I understand what you mean. Um, so we definitely have the undead. Um, someone in the chat just mentioned, um, I think, Draugr is what you mean, um, D-R-A-U-G-R. Um, it's a word that is often applied to the undead, although it's sort of incorrect, um, because this, the sagas of Icelanders, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad um, that we, we understood each other, Ali. Um, in the sagas of Icelanders, these creatures aren't actually called that. So um, the word Draugr in modern Icelandic means ghost. Um, and that's why uh, folklorists in, in the 19th century, um, what is his name? Jón Árnason, I think. Um, he collected folk stories in Iceland um, and he grouped them into different taxonomies. And one of the groups that he established was Draugasur, so stories about the undead, um, or ghost stories, really. Um, and I, Alvin Jakobsen himself said that Basically, because of that, people have used the term Draugr also for the, the the medieval undead, even though the sagas rarely use it. So in the in the sagas of Iceland, I think there's like two instances or something or three um, in which this term is applied to the undead. Usually the sagas are more interested in what these creatures do than in what they are. Um, and so the, the words that we see used more frequently are words that relate to the fact that they walk again after Gungur, literally revenant, something that walks again. Um, or Reimleikar, which means hauntings. So it's about, you know, the fact that they they rise from the dead and trouble the living, um, rather than about the fact that they are physically undead. Um, so these is, these creatures are definitely one category um, of of monster. Um, within that, we find different subcategories um, because the monster is very different to grasp. Um, this is part of its its essence, which you can't really pin down. Like it's difficult to say what it actually is, um, and it constantly escapes to, like attempts at categorizing it. Um, so we do have revenants that are just within their mounds, mound dwellers. Um, they, they were buried in mounds and they sit there and they guard their treasure. And as long as you leave them alone, they mostly leave you alone as well. Um, but obviously treasure is very um, appealing to heroes mm. and also fighting revenants is a way of gaining fame. So sometimes a saga hero will break into a mound to fight the revenant and um, steal his treasure. And in one instance, one of these mound dwellers actually leaves his mound and goes to the court of um, King Oliver Tryggvason in Norway and challenges him in, in a scene that's very similar to what we see in Sagawain and the Green Knight, where the Green Knight appears at Christmas and, and issues this challenge um, that the person who, who beheads him must come to join him a year uh, afterwards and, and endure the same fate. And mm-hmm. No one dares to do it, and, and Gawain eventually um, beheads the Green Knight, and the Green Knight is like, okay, I'll, I'll see you in a year, and then Gawain has to travel to the Green Knight and, and see what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Baudelaire Saga, there's a similar scene where the Revenant appears at the court of the king and, again, issues a challenge, and Gesther, the son of Baudelaire, who is a troll, um, interestingly, so there's they have a lot in common, those two, the, the Revenant, who's a troll in a way, and the troll, actual troll, Um Guess that has to then travel to like the furthest reaches of of basically Svalbard or like very far up in in um, 
Canada. It's it's a very paranormal topography, so we can't really pin this down to like mm-hmm. this is where this is located, um, and challenge that that revenant. But that's one of the few instances in which a mound dweller actually leaves this mound and like goes somewhere. Normally they don't. But then we do have revenants that go somewhere, and those are the really troublesome kinds. Um, they they like to ride roofs. Um, they like to kill sheep. They like to drive people insane. Um, sometimes the people they kill or who die because of them uh, will then also appear as revenants, which is obviously a problem. And your shepherds keep dying, and they suddenly they're they're also undead. Um, and then there's like this whole group of revenants haunting your farm. Definitely don't want that. Um, and then. You know, you have to find someone to put this haunting to rest. Um, there's one revenant in Laksala Saga who um, who says before he's, he dies, he says to his wife, I want to be buried standing up under the, the kitchen doorway, basically. Um, and from that, you already know, OK, this guy is going to be trouble when he's dead because he still wants to guard his farm mm-hmm. even after death. Um, and his wife's so scared of him that she complies. But obviously, he then comes back to haunt and he even kills his son, which is... Um, rare. Normally they they leave their family alone, but this one doesn't. Um, and then you have to find someone who who deals with that, you know, because you can't let this go on because they will just keep killing animals, which is a huge problem in the farming community. Um, mm. And they will keep killing humans, which is also a huge problem in any community. Um, and so you have to remove them. And ideally you find a, a, a hero like, like Greter um, to dispatch of the Revenant. But the problem with Heroes is that sometimes they are quite close to the monster themselves, and that's why we have this situation of the monster hunter, the monster slayer, um, like a like a Buffy kind of situation. Buffy, who is herself paranormal, um, because she is you know the chosen one, um, and the creatures she she hunts are also paranormal. So there's this closeness that I mentioned with Gestur and, and this um, challenging mount dweller as well. Um, so sometimes those those revenants and find something within the hero that they can latch onto, and Grete is cursed by the by the revenant that he kills. Um, and this this guy is called Glaumur. He was from Sweden, so also you know foreigners. <laughs> Weird. When those die, you never know what happens. Um, and Glaumur says to Grete, "So you've put a lot of trouble into finding me, um, but this is not going to be good for you. Like you're definitely not going to carry any luck away from this encounter. Um, and I I lay this curse on you that you will see my eyes um, in front of you in the dark from from this." point onwards until you die and that everything that you do will turn to lucklessness and outlawry and indeed shortly afterwards Greta is outlawed and he spends 20 years in outlawry um you know banished from the community living on the margins um until he's finally killed by mm-hmm. magic um so but there are whole chains of um chains of malign paranormal activity one scholar called it i think it was william sayers um that that happen around the undead, so they they are like a huge thing for saga narratives. Mm-hmm. So, did, are they? Cause I guess in my mind, when when I think of a a draugr, I would say they or, or any of this kind of undead revenant type situation. I always see them like a more of a zombie than a ghost. Yeah, and. Do we see that distinction? Are they because I guess the when when they come back, is it that they come back in their physical yes. body or so it's not like an apparition of no, exactly. a ghost. It's their actual body yeah. that comes back. So and that's, that's what makes them so dangerous. 
because they they can use that body, which is often larger and stronger than it was in life. And they can use that body to inflict damage. So it's not just that they have a psychological effect on the living and they do have that as well. And sometimes they seem to infect them with something so that people who have encountered them die shortly after the encounter. But physically, they're just incredibly destructive. Um, again, they kill animals and people. They Sometimes they will destroy the things around them. Um, some of them are unstable in their physical form. So this guy who was buried standing up under his kitchen doorway, um, he can somehow shapeshift into a seal, which then circles the ship of the people who weren't meaning to settle at his farm, which is now abandoned after he killed his son. Um, and the ship sinks because this was not a normal seal. It was the revenant in in the shape of a seal. Yeah. So sometimes they can cross into like other shapes as well, which is really like interesting. Shapeshift. Yeah. Uh, can we can we just appreciate it? it's no mean feat to bury somebody stood up. Uh and I assume they when you say underneath they they just lifted the the did they have floorboards, maybe? Or just, uh, just I dug, don't actually know. Probably no, just, just dug the earth and just yeah. like dropped him in there and put it back over. That's yeah. that's not easy to do. No, but it works within the story and it's it's you know narratively it's just super effective because it alerts you to the fact okay something is definitely going to happen here like this guy was trouble in life exactly like you don't say that to your wife um unless unless something's up you know Mm -hmm. so do we see ghosts in a modern sense of that like it's not a physical body it's a spirit of somebody that comes back rarely um so in laksala saga um the one of the husbands, I think the third husband of Guthrun Oswivastokir, and the, I could say, protagonist, one of the main protagonists of the saga, um, he drowns and she's walking towards the church, I believe, at the time. Um, and she sees an apparition of her husband standing there with his clothes dripping. And she knows that he's dead, um, but he's not physically there. They later find his body um washed up on the shore, I think. Um, so that's definitely an apparition. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have scenes just, in which we don't, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Is that, is that more of like a loving type of apparition? Is he, is he coming to see her in like a, a loving way rather than a threatening way? And he's not that? threatening. It's, it's, a, it's just a sign that he's died. So I, he, I don't remember exactly the, the way they interact with each other, which is a shame, but, um, I don't know if he says anything to her. Revenants rarely speak. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I'm sorry. Be, I don't remember. Maybe it could be, I guess we've all had that feeling of something bad happening <clears throat> and something bad has happened somewhere. And you kind of, it's an unexplainable phenomena of the way <laughs> you kind of just feel a little bit off. So maybe it could be, like a, I guess, an explanation of that. Like, yeah, it's just... They're just kind yeah. of to- told that he's no longer with us, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that could very well be. No, I think it's her second husband. He tr- he drowned. Sorry, mix it up. Her third is one of the other main protagonists. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think that could be. Um, so in, in rare cases, we get sort of a mixture of the types. So in, in Eirik Saga Röda, one of the sagas where they travel to Vinland, um, there's a, a guy who dies in, in a plague or, or something um or like some some kind of epidemic um and he comes back and and sort of foretells the future to his former wife or he, like his his widow really um he seems to be very 
like he seems to embody that Christian idea of the the um, the dead having knowledge of the beyond. Um, and what he tells her is also very Christian. And she is the foremother of various bishops um, in Iceland. Um, so her descendants are all, you know, very mm-hmm. um, strongly religious figures. Um, but then there are also scenes in which it's not clear whether the, the person is physically there, whether it's just an apparition. In Njálsaga, um, Gunnar sits on his mound and recites poetry, but it's like we don't know. Um, the saga doesn't tell us whether Gunnar is actually physically sitting on his mound or whether he just appears to his son, um, who's, by the fact that his father recited poetry, he's reminded of the fact that vengeance is still to be mm. done. Um, so, about- yeah, sometimes there's a lot of ambiguity about these stories as well. What about things like, I guess, poltergeist type activity where you would have something move, but there's no, uh-huh. there's no body, like there's no body or no apparition there. It's just weird things happening. Yeah, so, what would um, they put that down to? I mean, we we don't know what what these like. There was a, a suggestion made um, that the the riding of the houses that some revenants do that that's due to you know sheep crawling onto the roofs or like very strong storms that make the same kind of noise where the, the whole house is sort of rattling and you feel like there is a revenant sat on my roof and mm-hmm. that's the only possible explanation. But I always try, like, I prefer to look at the way the stories tell it because these things are real within the stories. Um, you can you can try to sort of look at the way these maybe rationalizations of certain natural phenomena, but that's not my approach generally. Um, sorry, where were we going before? Oh, yeah. The Frodo hauntings in Erbiga saga. Um, so this is one of the best haunting stories in all of the sagas because it's super long and elaborate and detailed and amazing. Um, it starts with this elderly woman coming to the farm, Fogunna, who um somehow has a weird thing for um the the young son of the farmer's wife, who's probably not the farmer's son. Um and she she has these nice bedclothes, like be, like linen, you know, very beautiful. And the farmer's wife, she's like, "Oh, this is gorgeous. I wanna I wanna have this." And Thorgan is like, "Nah, I don't think you can you can make use of this." Um, and then one day, a weird blood rain falls, and Thorgan is like, "Okay, I'm gonna die from this." And shortly afterwards, she does. And beforehand, she's like, "Please bring me to Skalholt." Which is where the bishopric in Iceland is nowadays. It wasn't back there, uh, wasn't there back then. Um, but apparently she knew that it was going to be established there. Um, bring me there and burn my bedclothes. Like I, I want this gone. Um, the the farmer's wife must not have them. But the farmer's wife doesn't burn them. And so obviously, you know, something is attached to that. And we don't really know what exactly. Is it just the the greed that's behind farmer's wife's actions or is, is there some kind of infection spreading we don't know the first the odd thing that happens after the blood rain which is also you know quite odd yeah, um, that just skip over it really right? <laughs> um the first weird thing is that um when people carry the corpse to um where it's supposed to be buried um they they come to a farm at night and it's really late and they're like soaking wet um and the farmer is super stingy and doesn't want to give them food um, so they just, you know, settle down somewhere and try to dry themselves off and go to sleep. And at some point during the night, they hear some weird rustling noises. And when they get up, they see Thogunna, this old woman who's dead, standing stark naked in the pantry and fixing them a meal. Um, so that's weird. Um, mm-hmm. But since they've just been Christianized, they sort of like make the sign of the cross over the meal and they eat it. And it's fine. She didn't 
mean to harm them. And then she lies quietly. After that, they can carry her to the church. She's buried. It's all good, you would think. Because back at Frodo, at the farm where we were um, to begin with, weird things start to happen. So there's this moon shape that goes anti-clockwise around the room and no one knows what it what it is. It's called an urda mauni, like a fateful moon in Icelandic. Um, there is... That, that's interesting when, for anybody who watches ghost programs, I do like a good ghost program, um, you always see like little light orbs. That's like one of the most popular mm-hmm. things that you catch like a light anomaly on a camera or uh-huh. a camera or video camera. It's always the little light orbs that float around. And that's, I feel like that's, that's sort of what, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. This little, it is kind of like a little moon, I guess, is uh-huh. what you could describe it as. That is super interesting. Um, the other thing that they they notice is that um, there's this weird ripping sound coming from the from the pantry, which is like filled with dried fish for the winter. Um, and when they go to check, they find a, a, like a seal's tail or something sticking out, and they try to pull on it, um, but it just rips through their hands and and is gone. But all the fish is also gone, as if it had been eaten. Um, so it's just like the the fish bones that are still left. And then people start to die. Cheeky seal. Yeah, but it was definitely not like a, a natural seal. There was definitely something something oh, okay. going on. Yeah, we don't know. Like, obviously, a seal would not get, like, high up in the pantry normally, would it? Um, and then then people start to get in, ill and die um, in, in waves. We have one wave of six people, then six people drown, and then another wave of six people die of the same illness. Um, and they all come back. And they all start to haunt the farm and they end up sitting in the main hall across the fire from each other and they throw mud at each other because apparently those people who died from sickness didn't like those who drowned and they just keep quarreling after death. Wow. And then the question arises, how do you get rid of that? Because the living are by now, you know, stuck in some kind of outhouse where it's less, less space for them, less warm, smaller fire. Um, some of their supplies for the winter are gone. And there's there's these like 18 dead people sitting around the fire in the big hall. So you have to get rid of those because it's just super disruptive, mm-hmm. um, even though they're not actively threatening, but you still have to remove them. So the idea that um, people come up with, or like one particularly intelligent person comes up with, um, who, by the way, is uh, Snorri Gordi, the nephew of Gisli. Um, okay. Yeah. So they're all related anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he advises them to hold a council um, or like a, a, a like a courtroom basically a courtroom in front of the door and and charge them with trespassing and tell them to leave and that's what they do and afterwards they um they have a priest carry like incense and and holy water around the hall and um just cleanse it that way and with this combination of like legal and religious means um the revenants are gone i feel like that's quite polite of them they yep. left quite well, but that, that would suggest that they, the humans and the ghost type spirits can't kind of exist in the same place. Because I guess for the most part, you would, or when you associate like a haunting, it's usually you stay in an area and the the ghostly activities happen around you. Whereas they seem like they were almost forced to do you think it would be they were they were there out of fear for what was happening or just because this was happening and they couldn't be in that space which would kind of seem as though everything was very physical that was happening as if those very, yeah those ghosts were just really there because obviously i 
I can only go by like I've never been in a paranormal paranormal situation, but only from kind of like what you watch on TV or films, and you have this idea of ghosts of kind of being there, not being there, and they're they're kind of in and out, and maybe they're causing a little bit of kerfuffle, but it's not a very physical, tangible thing that's there constantly that would kind of force a whole group of people to just move to an outhouse. Yeah, so in in the sagas, most of the time, um, we do have this physical presence and people are afraid of them, even though they're not actively threatening. So unlike someone like like Glaumur, or in the same saga, we have another guy who who goes around, you know, killing people, even his wife. Um, and he's, he's a whole mess. He comes back as a monstrous bull and then kills more people. But anyway, um, super interesting story as well. Um, but like, unlike those people, those those groups um, of revenants at this particular farm, they don't really do anything. They're just a nuisance, but they're still dangerous and and frightening because they're undead. And, you know, you shouldn't have undead people sitting around your fire at home um, mm. because people shouldn't be undead. They should either be alive or dead. Like that's a thing that should just not happen. Um, mm. So that in itself is so terrifying that people will run away from it. Yeah. And it seems that they can use provisions as well. Mm. I guess I never really thought of a ghost having to eat. But Yeah, we, like we don't know what exactly eats all the fish. Like it's completely unclear. It's just one of those facets of this particular story of hauntings. But it it has more of this poltergeisty feel to it that you mm-hmm. were mentioning. So so I did want to talk about it briefly. Um and then also we have this story about the old woman who who comes back and like makes food for everyone. It's just like such an iconic scene um mm-hmm. in Saga literature. It's great. That's yeah that I I think we've spoke about that on one of the previous Halloween episodes. And it's such an endearing story. I feel like I wouldn't mind if there was a, if I had a haunting, oh, you know what? I still wouldn't like it. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, no, still, it's, not, it's not great. Yeah. Even if she was making me food and I like food, um, but if she, I'd still would it be a little bit creeped out. Mm-hmm. But then if she was polite, I guess. She doesn't interact with the living at all. Um, so the, the revenants that they, you know, charged with trespassing. They all say, "Well, I stayed here while I was while I was welcome, basically. And now that I'm no longer welcome, I leave." That's what they imply. So they actually talk to the living in this instance, but she doesn't interact at all. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, the less the undead interact with the living, the less problematic they are. Um, the more they interact, the more disturbing they are. So in, in South Saga, we have this guy called Clovey, who's a berserk in life as well. So we've got multiple dimensions of monstrosity coming together in this one mm. guy. Um, and he is killed with the help of his wife, I guess. I mean, he abducted her, so we don't know if that it's a legal marriage or, or you know, whatever. Um, and she sort of, together with her brother, she orchestrates his death. And... Um, Within hours of his death, he comes back and tries to get into her bed. So he's clearly very much fueled by sort of sexual uh, mm. drives. And then they behead him. And normally that's that's fine, you know. Revenants will not come back after they're beheaded. Ideally, you place their head between their buttocks, um, which has been suggested as, as a, a way of shaming the undead by putting their mouth sort of where their anus is. Mm. Um but for Clovey, being beheaded is no problem at all. He just takes his head and he speaks poetry with it and he travels around and he uses it as a weapon, you know, waving it at people. And everyone is obviously terrified of this guy. 
because he mm-hmm. was a menace in life and now he's undead and like 10 times worse um so with him the only way of, of laying him to rest is fire so you have to have to completely destroy his body after okay. afterwards so yeah it's a great weapon like it's very effective mm-hmm. that's that's so fascinating because i remember i visited um one of the old abundant medieval villages called Warren Purser in in England. And they had, a, I'm trying to remember it now because it's been a while since I was there. And they had a similar situation where they, they bury people in the graveyard. Um, and if, if I remember correctly, they were haunting the village. Um, so they dug them up. Uh, slashed the bones, uh, burnt the bones, and then reburied them in a mass grave outside mm-hmm. of the village walls. And they found this this pit, basically with all these different bones in from different, almost from different time, different time period, not different mm-hmm. time periods, but like not too close together. Not so they weren't all didn't all die at the same time. They right. all kind of all the bone, a lot of the bones had been slashed or crushed uh so it's very like post-mortem mutilation mm-hmm. and it's it was fascinating so it's kind of fascinating that that is clearly something that that goes on within um like medieval england as well yeah so i think destroying the body and like the integrity of the body is is a very good way of getting rid of monsters it's something that you do with other monsters as well like um with berserks um a lot of the time they they are somehow magically protected through their ability to go berserk. Um, they can't be touched by fire or iron. Um, and how do you break someone's body who, if you if you can't cut into it with your sword? Um, well, if you're a hero, then you can overcome those limitations. Mm-hmm. Or you have the power of Christianity on your side. That's also very helpful. You have a, a fire that you bless with, you know, holy water and, and whatnot. Um, and the berserk is like trying to prove his superiority and walks through it and is, is burned. Um, but ideally, you cut parts of their body off or break into their physical integrity in another way. So again, in Erbiges, this is just a fantastic saga because it, it's like it has this haunting story that I just taught with the old woman and the blood rain and the weird moon and all that kind of stuff. Um, it also has an amazing story about two berserk brothers who um, are brought to Iceland by a chieftain who who fancies himself like a bit of a king because berserks are great when they serve a king, but they're problematic when they have nothing to do when they like, they can't channel their immense strength and, and disruptive natures into something useful. Um, so if they're like, elite bodyguards for a king super but if they're like roaming around the Icelandic landscape or even the Norwegian landscape very problematic um but these these guys um they're they're brought to Iceland basically against their will and they're like what are we even doing here like this this sucks (laughs) um Mm. we want something to do um but since they don't have anything to do one of the guys falls in love with uh, the daughter of the farmer they're staying with um and he even speaks like love poetry for her so you know this is in, in a very stylized meter that you associate with the highest degrees of skaldic poetry in, in the Middle Ages, um, in the, the Scandinavian Middle Ages. And it's just weird to see that. But the the girl, we never see her response. And the father's like this, no, this is not happening. I'm not marrying my 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 daughter to a berserk. Um, so how do you get rid of these guys? Because they're obviously much stronger than everyone else in, mm-hmm. in the area. And again, Snorri Gordy, 
Gisli's nephew um, comes up with a clever plan because he's like this mob boss who's like pulling all the strings in the background of of like Icelandic society, and he devises all the clever plans. Um, and they they give the berserks a task of building a wall around the farm and clearing um, a road through the lava field. And this task has exhausted them so much that they can't go berserk and they can't access their immense strength. And when they come back like super exhausted and tired, this is basically like when you when you're really upset and you're super angry and afterwards you're just exhausted. This yeah. this sort of after an adrenaline rush, you know, you're just completely knackered. And that's what happens with berserks as well. This is what they count on um so they come back and they're like wiped um and the farmer says well we've prepared this nice bathhouse for you guys how about you you know sit down in the sauna and you know relax a bit because you've been doing all this hard work for us and the guys are like yeah cool okay we'll we'll do that turns out the bathhouse is super hot um they are trying to get outside but the the combination of this extreme heat and the exhaustion makes them vulnerable. Um, and so they can be beheaded as they try to get out of the bathhouse. So you have to find really, like if you don't have a hero who can just, you know, chop off an arm or a leg, breaking the body in this way, you um, you have to come up with strategies. Um, Quite how, elaborate. How, yeah, right? Super elaborate. Yeah, I feel like there's a, a huge room for error in that plan. But yeah. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I find that interesting. Is a so what a berserk... Are they always classified as monsters? Do they? Because I think for most people, they, I would say, they seem to be like a, just a warrior, elite, mm-hmm. uh, but very much a human figure that's just a warrior. Yeah, like a a warrior elite, probably for maybe like a, like say for a king or somebody of noble standing, and just be that kind of. That kind of uh, yeah, I guess elite warriors are the best way to put it, rather than some type of monster. I've never so, really seen them described as that. So this again depends on what context they appear in, and and I think this like the the story world's idea comes into that, um, and then also just the context in which they appear. So as you said, you know, in the retinue of the king, as their bodyguards, it's like the the. The guys who are the first in line to attack when when someone um, goes raiding or has like a huge um, battle with ships and whatnot, they're great for that. They will fight for their king. Fantastic. Um, they will crush the opposition. Um, this is really what you want as a king. But it really depends on them respecting the king enough to actually do what the king says because they're stronger than the king and they could just smash the guy's head um, mm-hmm. if they wanted to. But they don't because they have like a natural respect for that authority figure. So it's a very classist society as well, with the king at the top, and you have all these ideas attached to to royal authority, which are somehow um, translated into berserk stories. And in this story um, that I just mentioned in, in Erbik Yasaga, we see this as well because um, this Icelandic farmer brings them to Iceland from Norway, where he encountered them at the court of a Norwegian ruler, where they were fine. You know, they were at the ruler's court. They were doing their thing. It was fine. They were in control um, or they were being controlled. But then they come to Iceland and this guy who brought them over, he doesn't have this natural royal authority and he cannot control them. And he doesn't have the kind of work for them that they would like to do. So he Mm -hmm. gives them to his brother, who's um, more violent in temper. And he sort of uses them as his personal like hitmen, essentially. 
Um, and as that, they're also okay. But then they fall in love with the daughter and want to marry into the family, and you definitely can't allow that. If berserks appear outside of a context in which there's some control over them and their abilities, um, they turn into bandits, they turn into rapists, um, they they just cause a lot of trouble for people. So Gisla Saga opens with the story of this berserk, um, I think he's called Björn in Blackie, who, who goes around challenging men for their wives and their daughters. Um, mm -hmm. And this is how, you know, this entire story starts out and why we need this sword Grausida to overcome the berserk because he kills one of the brothers, um, the berserk um, kills one of the brothers trying to get to uh, his wife. Um, and the other brother, I think it's the first Gisli, um, he says, well, um, I need to get myself a better weapon. And he gets this sword Grausida um, and they fight and he kills the berserk because he had this, this sword. Mm -hmm. um, but then he doesn't want to give the sword back. And that's where this whole tragedy starts with um, the, the magic weapon and the things that happen afterwards. It, it does feel like there's a lot of comparisons between that and the military elite mm. of today. And without being offensive to anybody who's military elite, you know, if you had, you know, you have things like the SAS, the the Navy SEALs, the, the real top, they're wonderful when they're, doing the job i guess that they're paid to do but if you then took them away from that or they left that and then worked independently as a mercenary mm -hmm. you would then you know those those skills are then being used maybe for more nefarious reasons and it also feels like it has a very hyper masculine feel yeah. to it which you kind of get also within that upper kind of or it's typically seen with like that upper, not maybe not even just the military elite. Typically, with military in general, that kind of hyper masculine type feel that you you get going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why um, the sexual threat they pose and the fact that they often appear as rapists um, that is really the main problem with them um, because they will they will take your daughters and your wives and your sisters away from you for a time and violate them and then sort of give them back. Um, abused and maybe pregnant. And um, so the reason why Clovey and Sartala Saga, the, the guy with the, the beheaded revenant who speaks poetry with his head, um, the reason why he's so problematic is because he's the son of a berserk. So there's this line of berserkism sort of running through his family. So mm -hmm. the implication is that if, if this berserk rapes your sister and she's pregnant, then your nephew, who's sort of born out of this abuse, will also probably be a berserk. Um, this is sort of like an implication that we see in some sagas that this seems to be a hereditary thing. Okay. Um, but interestingly, when you just mentioned um, like elite combat specialist in, in today's society, it's interesting that berserkism has also been compared to combat trauma in in modern day veterans. That it's like somehow tied to to PTSD, and that's why they go into this intense rage. Um, okay. So yeah, this this is a really interesting idea as well. Um, and what's his name? Roderick Dale has written a great book about the sex mm -hmm. as well. So definitely, definitely recommend that. Yeah, Roderick's been on here twice. Oh, fantastic! So, Obviously, so, then you yeah. So for, yeah, for anybody that does want to know more about uh, berserkers, then I would recommend his episodes with without a doubt. We did one on the Great Heathen Army and mm -hmm. a little bit of berserkers, but we did one sole episode on um i think it's called the berserker strut the episode because we spoke about this idea that it could possibly be like a war dance to mm -hmm. to get people in 
in a frenzy before war. Uh, but yeah, I feel like berserkers are. A, it's a tough one in a sense of the most people really kind of glorify them in a sense yeah. of when it comes to not yeah. because they're quite cool. You know, they can't be hurt by fire eye and they're, they go into this rage and it, there's probably a lot of, well, there is a lot of misconceptions when it comes to them as well, but it's this, it is kind of that, that whole thing of like Vikings being super, it is cool that that kind of really good warriors and, and they, they do what needs to be done and, and whatever it, it is that thing. So to, um, to describe them as like monstrous, I've never really come across that before. But I can also see it. I can completely. Yeah. Kind of... For me, it's always like I. It's weird to see them glorified in this way, um, coming from the opposite perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I once, I, I once saw a guy in the gym who had um, like shorts on or, or trousers, whatever it was, with like s- sort of in this sort of pseudo runic script and berserk written down the side of the pant leg, um, and. And I was like, is this really what he wants to emulate? Like these guys who go around raping women? Like, is this really the type of masculinity that he wants to embody? Mm-hmm. But obviously people don't know about that. Exactly. People, it's not... people see the context where they appear as like elite warriors. And they, they we do have that, you know, that's not wrong. But it's only part of the picture. Um, mm-hmm. So we also have to look at these other stories in which they appear as incredibly disruptive and and incredibly violent. And, you know, as rapists who abuse mm-hmm. women. Um, who abuse women to shame the men in their family, who, saying, you know, you couldn't control the, the the women, you couldn't fight me, you couldn't defeat me, so I'm taking her away from you. Um, that's also a, a side of the story, and we have mm-hmm. to look at that as well. And that's the thing with the monsters, right? It There's no easy way of framing it. There's no easy way of understanding it. Like, you think, okay, I've looked at berserks, now I know what the monster is. But then you see stories about berserks in, in the King sagas, and, you know, there they play a completely different role. Um, as elite bodyguards. Um, and in in the, the legendary sagas I was talking about earlier, they can be problematic, but in a very different way, like the, the sexual element is far less important there um, mm. frequently. Like I wouldn't say it always, but but in many stories, it's it's just not not really what those sagas are interested in. So in the but in the Islanding Asugat and the sagas of Icelanders, their main threat is through their sexual violence. So, you know, it's so complicated to to say, okay, this is what this creature is, and I understand it. Because then you look at a different text and suddenly there's a different dimension that you can't really factor into the theory mm-hmm. that you've just constructed. Yeah, I, I think that's it, it's a super fascinating different perspective of what a berserker is. And, you know, I've done hundred and this is like a hundred and seventy something episodes. I think that's what we're in now. And I've never come across the or even like heard of like the monstrous side of the berserk and the you know the the sexual dominance mm. so i feel like if, if i've not heard of it then the chance of the the, the average kind of lay person who's interested in this kind of stuff they're only going to see the not the fun side but the the glorified side which you can kind of get behind and be like especially when it comes to gym wear yeah it's like that that, that idea of this this yeah. warrior elite it's cool um so yeah i i find that that really fascinating and something that we probably need to educate people on more 
so they I think do, so too. So they do know what they're um, what they're wearing, and I guess is there is there a chance that this kind of darker side is down to like Christian propaganda of like to de- demean them, or I mean, I, I would probably say I, I would probably say it's not going to be that because I would assume this kind of behavior is something that very much goes back for probably as old as time. So so the literature that this is in, the, the depiction I was talking about is the sagas of Icelanders. Um, I mean, all of the, the creatures that I looked at, and we see this as well with magic users, who you obviously just talked about with, with Gwen Knight, um, we see this as well with them that... Um, this type of monstrosity or this this attachment to like paranormal forces um, that we see with Berserks, their power obviously that is associated with Odin. Um, then with Brevenants, obviously they're part of the past because they're undead and they don't belong to the present anymore. Um, the the power of the magic users also comes from like, you know, it's called Fortneskia, um, old old beliefs, old practices. Um, People are called um old fashioned in their in their practices um, when they when it's that's like an, a euphemism for uh, for magic or for magic use. Um, so all of that is associated with the pagan past. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a way of Christian authors explaining this stuff away? Maybe, but I mean, all of this was written by people who are very firmly Christian and probably didn't have a lot of need for that. Um, so it's more a question of why why the monstrous is located in this past. Why is it so firmly associated with something that is gone but still haunts the present? You know, mm. what what echoes of the past, pagan and otherwise, are still present in the present that don't let go of us? What is the threat that is still lurking back there? Um and that's what I was then looking at because I don't think we can ever fully answer the question whether something is like Christians trying to, you know, make sense of something or like propagandizing against something because um, we just don't have the sources from before the conversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do we, that's why I, I was actually wondering whether we see any of these creatures or monsters in any pre-Christian sense or is it do we know like whether they exist because i've always wondered whether ghosts are just a a mainly christian thing um i mean we we have like we have old edit poems that have people rising up from the dead probably uh so Völuspá, for example um where the the Völva that o- probably odin we assume it's odin talks to she seems to to come back from the dead. And in another poem, Odin is also seen like bringing a, a vulva back from the dead to ask her questions. Um, so there seems to be some idea of, of the undead. I mean, we see, you know, ideas of the undead in most cultures throughout history um, in different ways. Obviously, vampires crop up in, in like different, different times and different places, representing all sorts of different ideas. Um, and then we have zombies and, you know, various other configurations of that. Um, we have picture stones and other things that depict these these animal warriors that have been associated with berserks, but we don't really know whether it's the same concept. Um, this is what I've liked to call the berserk soup, um, where people have thrown everything from like Tacitus to like 15th century legendary sagas 
and like gold brackets and a couple of picture stones and some runic inscriptions into like one pot and stirred it all around and like just, you know, pulled out of it whatever they needed for their argument. So a lot of the scholarship, like the older scholarship in Berserks is very problematic. Um, and I also know that Roderick and I disagree on something. So I don't think he subscribes to this notion of, of hereditary Berserkism, which is absolutely fair. You know, this is why we're scholars who have different different approaches, different ideas. And mm-hmm. um, ultimately we need all of them to, to come to a better understanding of it. So yeah, but like um, we don't really know because a lot of the, the material that we have from before the conversion is very vague. And then we do have scholarly poetry, for example, which mentions Berserkir and Ulfhesna, which seem to be like related forms of animal warriors. So there seems to be something going on there, um, but it's more often than not, it's it's easier to just look at one context um, rather than trying to, to actually, you know, understand all of it because it's very difficult to do that because we have to use different methodologies different apply different historical contexts to different types of sources um so that's why i choose to look at one genre and the depiction of a particular character type in one genre or one group of sagas um and then from that we can compare um but yeah other people are much more knowledgeable about um the the pictorial representations of this in in pre-christian art Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, okay, so I have a new little thing that I like to do in the episodes where I find something online and we uh, find out whether it's misinformation, we debunk it. So I've, I found a little list on a website of different monsters from Ooh. Nordic mythology um, or Norse mythology as they, they put it, but my old co-host used to tell me off for using that word, so we don't use it anymore. Oh. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I wanted to go through there. I will say most of them aren't human-esque. They are probably more of the typical type monsters. Um, yeah, so if you if you have time, we could just go through a few and see what's yeah. real, what's not real. Okay, so the first one is is Trolls obviously yeah very um, real <laughs> yeah as as we we clearly have just spoken about um but it seems that it's not the they're not limited to the typical idea of what we would think of or what most people would think of a troll from yeah. things like troll hunter troll those little figurines with the long hair that we used to see mm-hmm. uh, so they're not yeah they're not just those i guess they're also a- that they're also maybe not the little figurines um those are folklore trolls from like later scandinavian folklore um they're also like the, the sort of gianty figures that live in the mountains um but they're so much more it's like it, the, the concept of the troll sort of embodies the problem that we have dealing with monstrosity because it's so many things that we don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. So the the next one were Nissas. Mm, mm, that's Wait. also a folklore creature. Okay, so that's yeah. not a medieval literature. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this is the Vikings, mythical monsters and elves. So they're they're much like. Um, are you able to give a quick? overview of what they are oh god i'm I, i'm not a folklorist at all oh, okay. um, 
I should be more knowledgeable about, about these things, but I'm really not. Um, yeah, no, no. It, I, I think they're like small, how like spirits that. But I, I'm just yeah, I'm yeah. just half remembering things from my childhood here. So, mm-hmm. so yes, yeah, so this this is the each Viking family had one of at least one Nissa living in their barn. Uh, the Nissa protected their animals and their home. In exchange, the family made little gifts and left them in the barn for the Nissas to en- to enjoy gifts um, of tiny hats and jackets. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which makes sense because we all the the ones that I think this is more of a Norwegian term for them if I'm not mistaken. Um, they're yeah, like the, yeah, the tomte. Yeah, they're like the little. I think I think in England we have a bad habit of calling them gronks. Is it gronks? Because we get them from IKEA, those little Christmas figurines. You know the ones that I. The ones that we see in IKEA at Christmas, with like the long, tall hat and the big, right, yeah, nose. This all this kind of got popular in the last five years. Um, I think, uh, as from from what I know, I, th- I think that there, um, this is like a depiction of them, but it could be completely wrong. But this is something that we see in a lot of cultures. Like in Germany, we have similar like household spirits. Um, that sort of, yeah, guard the homestead mm-hmm. or like contribute to the housework. And then as people were saying just in the chat, you you leave things out for them, especially food. They like food. Um, and and you try to make sure that, you know, everything's in a certain way and that you pay attention and respect to them um, because otherwise yeah. they get angry and destroy things. So that's, I think that's what something that we see across a lot of different countries and cultures. Um, and this is one possible Scandinavian iteration of it, but there's no, not to my knowledge, there's no medieval evidence for for that kind okay. of thing. So we do have um, land spirits, landweichter that I mentioned in the sagas, but they are not household spirits; they are spirits that live within the land, um, and which can be offended very easily if you if you do the wrong things. Um, like you don't want to pee in certain spots, for example, because that might be offensive to them, um, and you want to take the the animal heads off your ship before you sail into harp because they mm-hmm. also might not like that. Um, and and sometimes they can drive people insane as well. Um, so you definitely want to be careful with it, but they're not associated to particular households. Yeah, perfect. Uh, the next one is the Fossa Grimmen. Oh God, I don't know anything about that. I'm really oh. sorry. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's these are all sold as Viking monsters. So yeah, so, somebody's this, not... this all sounds like Scandinavian folklore to me. But like, mm-hmm. we, I think we've got Scandinavians here, right? So maybe maybe yeah. people in the chat can can uh, you know jump but, in. No, but it but it it does its job anyway because anybody that comes across this and is reading them as Viking because there <laughs> some websites put them out there as Viking. At least we can get rid of that. Um, yeah. So this says the Vikings believed the Fossa Grimmen was a scary looking ghost who haunted brooks and creeks. All the Fossa Grimmen ever did was play his fiddle. Uh, the Vikings knew when the Fossa Grimmen was around, they could hear the fiddle in the fiddle in the sound of running water. The Vikings did not try to catch a glimpse of the Fossa Grimmen. Uh, they were pretty sure he was harmless, but just in case they kept their distance. Hmm. Again, I have never heard of a medieval story about this, but it might exist. Um, also, we don't know how old folk stories are, obviously, so um, that you know that can have long roots. And there's a, again a similar creature in Germany, which I think is called the Neck, um, which does similar things and like haunt um, streams mm. and waterfalls. So, okay, but it's not a it's not a Viking monster. Not that I know, no. Yes. 
Okay, the, the next one is the mayor. Okay. Should I read the description? Read it out. Yeah, please do. Please do. Uh, The Vikings believe. I always know usually when a when a website's bullshit because they just use the word Vikings Mm -hmm. repeatedly over and over and over. Um, The Vikings believed if you could not see it, it could not harm you, uh, but that did not mean it could not affect you because it could. The mayor was a hideous creature who leaped on people at night while they were sleeping and gave them bad dreams. This is perhaps why bad dreams are called nightmares. Uh, a bad dream might be unpleasant, uh, but it could not really harm you, not like a sword or a dagger. So, yeah, we do have um, maybe a related concept of being trotrida, like troll-ridden, um, which sort of you know possesses you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this it is maybe a way of making sense of sleep paralysis um, because you can't move when this thing is sitting on you. Um yeah, and there's yeah, there's an, an idea that you know magic users can induce something similar. So again, in Erdbeck Saga, which has all the stories about all of the paranormal things, there is there are two magic using women who are in contest uh, contest with each other, um, trying to you know seduce this young man who they're they're basically tutoring, um, teaching magic, um, and one of them overwhelms him at night and does something of this sort to him um and he's found the next morning and he's all you know disturbed and and mentally not very well mm-hmm. um so there seems to be something like that in the sagas as well okay but it's not cold no 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 okay so you see it looks like they've taken something that's there but not it's, um, it's called a, a or so it, it has again to do with trolls always like shape shifting potentially um okay. hamburg is a, a shape word Mm-hmm. All right, we've got two more, two more. Oh, okay, and I'm betting neither of them are <laughs> from the Viking Age. Uh, the Pester. Again, never heard of it. That's never good when uh, somebody who specialises in monsters in Nordic mythology goes. Never heard of it. Never Again, I think stuff. the Scandinavians who are listening to this probably know more about this than I do. Yeah, it, but it just shows that they've taken something that's Scandinavian and just attributed it to being yeah. Viking, which is so often. Yeah. And then people who don't know any better just go, okay, um, that's clearly Viking. And then they just lives on forever mm. as bullshit. So we're doing, we're doing our job. We're doing a, doing a public service here. But if it's uh, a personification of the plague, then, then um, it, you would think it appears in medieval sources. So I need to chase this. I, need so, to, I want to know more about this. Someone so, was just writing that in the chat. That, um... Yeah, so this is the, during the Middle Ages when mm. the plague spread across Europe, a tale began of an old woman dressed all in black, mm-hmm. uh, carrying a broom and a rake. As the story goes, if you caught sight of the pesto, you would get the plague and die. Knowing he would, uh, knowing he would die anyway, a Viking might try to kill the pesto to save his family and home. The pesto was a magical creature, so the odds were the Viking could not kill her. Uh, but just because the odds were against him, he, it, him never stopped a Viking from trying. In Viking, the fucking hell, they've used the Viking, they've used the word Viking here a lot. Uh, in Viking times, clothes were decorated with embroidery and brightly colored dyes. Not only did uh, that make clothes beautiful, but no woman wanted to be mistaken for pesto by wearing all black. Bullshit fucking bullshit <laughs> yeah i mean also since the play came to norway in like 1350 which is you know quite 
a long time away from the Viking Age. Um, so I'm, I would assume that there are medieval mentions of this creature, and I'm, I'm definitely going to look this up. Um, and thank you also for the reference to Kettleson, whose who's paintings. Um, yeah, they they are the trolls that we think of, uh, for sure. Um, but again, this is not in the sagas. So Icelanders have, do not have this con conceptualization. And since most of our textual sources that we look at in Old Norse Icelandic studies, hence the name, um, are from Iceland, this has never crossed my mind um, or like my my desk, um, but should be there somewhere. So I will I will I will look that up. Yeah, it's given me inspiration now. Wonderful. Okay, the the knocken. Yes, that's a um, that's the equivalent of the neck. That's right. Um, that's a, a water related creature as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Is it also called the knock? It was not a nice monster. Yeah. Uh, he was a water creature who lived in ponds. He was a shapeshifter which meant he could change his shift uh, to look just like any, just look just like about anything. One of his favorite shapes was that of a beautiful young man who tempted women to come and swim with him. Uh, this one's, this description is really long. I don't know. No, I think that should be okay. Again, this is some, something from, from later folklore and fairy tales. Um, definitely not in the sagas. Okay, perfect. Uh, the last one, I'm hopeful for this one. I'm hopeful for this one. Um, the Kraken. Uh, the Kraken okay. was the worst of all. He was a huge crab or octopus-looking water creature who lived in the sea, and he was enormous. Enorm enormous? Enormous. <laughs> <laughs> Some said he was larger than a ship. Others insisted he was larger than an island. The Kraken had no mercy. He had only one job, to drag drag a ship down to the bottom of the sea. The only way to save yourself from the Kraken was to abandon ship and try and keep yourself afloat until you reached land or were rescued by another ship. Yeah, so I don't know where this comes from. It may be Greek, as someone just says in the chat. Um, definitely not in the sagas. What we do have in the sagas are those um, sea mammals. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's stories about um, paranormal seals or walruses. Um, drowning ships by circling them or like looking at them in a in a funny way. Um, so we have similar ideas, but not in in uh, octopus shape. See, that's the only one that I'd heard previously to this um, that was of like Viking Age origin. It was for some reason it was one that I'd that stuck with me that I'd heard, but I can't remember where I'd heard it. And I definitely heard it pre-podcast, so it's likely complete mm. bullshit. Um, that for some reason the Kraken had started out as a, but maybe it wasn't called the Kraken or something. I don't know. But it started out life as like a, a Nordic monster, but mm. I don't know. Um, now I'm constantly second guessing myself because I'm like, is this just something that I know nothing about? It's it's okay. I I completely put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe someone in the in the chat can. Yeah, you know. I look forward to, um, to discussing that. Okay, I have a I have one more. This is this is one that we I think we've spoken about before. Um, the Nukalev, Nukalave, Nukalevi. <laughs> How do you spell that? Uh, N U C K E L A V double -E. Uh, is a horse like demon from Arcadian oh. Arcadian folklore. Oh, so, okay, so from the Orkneys. Mm -hmm. 
that combines equine and human elements. British folklorist yes. Catherine Briggs called it the nastiest of all demons of, uh, of Scotland's Northern Ireland. Uh, the Nukalave or Nukalave, uh Nukalev's breath was thought to wilt crops and sicken livestock. I've met some people who have breath like that. Uh, and the creature was <laughs> held responsible for not naming it. Can't name. <laughs> better, uh, better not to. Yeah. And the creature was held responsible for droughts and epidemics on land, despite being predominantly a sea dweller. Um, and I, I feel like I read somewhere once that it like breathes fire or some shit. It's like a terrifying creature. Yeah, so obviously, if we're then talking about, you know, um, Orcadian folklore and, and Norwegian and Swedish folklore, obviously, you know, when when we talk about the Vikings, we can incorporate just anything from anywhere in that huge um, geographical area that they, they did actually travel to. Um, but what is then Viking? What, yeah. what is actually like a Viking Age creature? Obviously, I'm mostly familiar with the Icelandic sources, um, and and some of the Norwegian stuff, but not a lot of it because I, I mostly work on Iceland. Um, so in in a specific time frame. Um, so obviously a lot of that falls outside of the sources that we work on. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have with with these kinds of creatures, we do have similar ideas. There's like this this monster called Sealkotla, which is um, this the seal headed creature in in a, a bishop saga, um, which is very strange so we we have all sorts of like folklore kind of figures in in different groups of sagas as well it just again it depends on the context in which they appear mm. um and this is why we why i personally think we have to be so sensitive of the context and like the the background and the uh, the people that created these stories if we know anything about them obviously with folklore that's that's difficult um so we can we can date it even less than we we can date medieval stories um Rather than conflating things and trying to make things into what we would like them to be, you know, the berserk soup and all that, um, or like the Viking monster soup that we just delved yeah. into. Um, mm. Because some of these things are very specific in a specific cultural context, and then they they become conflated with all sorts of other ideas. Wait. And yeah. It seems like all of them come from post-Viking age, and then they're just Most, yeah. just, just because they they're somewhere in that Scandinavian sphere. People who don't know any better, they're just wanting to write a quick blog. Go, oh, this is Viking. Uh, so Alyssa did some digging on the Kraken. Yeah. And just to kind of paraphrase the 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 paragraph, it, it seems like it's the Kraken is a mytho- mythical animal from Norwegian folklore uh, in the form of a huge sea monster or a gigantic fish. Uh, the fishermen are said to have seen along the coast of Norway, uh, but it seems like the oldest story is from the 13th century. So again, yeah. So know. the king's yeah the king's miracle that does mention um, stories about various monstrous creatures like that. That's true. Um, we also have stories about like um, other like sea dwelling creatures that sort of like mer mer people like mermen um, mm. that are also monstrous and and like to sink ships and like pull people down into the sea so um those there are definitely ideas about that yeah that's true wonderful okay let's let's wrap this up and do a little q a if that's okay yeah sure wonderful um well thank you thank you very much for joining uh do you want to give a little shout out for anything you're you want to push i guess whether it's your 
social medias or your books, anything you want to throw some eyes on. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of um moving away from Twitter. So you can you can find me on Blue Sky as well. Um both for I still call it Twitter, I refuse to call it whatever it's called now. Um both for both um communities, um my 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 username is Becca Merkelbach. Um just one one word, Becca Merkelbach. Um if you're interested in monsters, read my book Monsters in Society, Alterity, Transgression, and the Use of the Past in Medieval Iceland. That should be out um, in open access now, or you can just email me and I'll send you a PDF. Um, my second book on the post-classical sagas will be out next year sometime. Um, so so watch this space. Um it'll come, it'll come out with Boydel and Brewer. You can come back and talk about that when when it's due. Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. It has, yeah. I I love these. I love I, I always love when something completely changes my mind on something. Well, I'm glad. Because again, before I was like, berserkers are cool. They're 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 harmless warriors. Mm. Turns mm-hmm. out they're not. They're just shitty men. <laughs> Some of them are, you know. As as with humans, um, so often, you know, there's there's more more than one truth, and they can yeah. be called warriors, but they can also be really awful. Yeah, yeah, that that rings true for. Like I said, most of everything, I guess. Yeah. Everyone wants to, I feel like at the moment, probably down to social media, people want to look through everything as black and white. Probably, unfortunately, literally at the minute, but also uh, kind of figuratively that everything just kind of is very simple and everything fits into these two boxes, pick a team, left or right, red or blue, whatever it is. And then if you go in that box, then fuck you. I don't like you anymore. And it's not like everything's just gray. Yeah. Well, it's gray. This is why we need the monster as well as from like a cultural standpoint, because it, it challenges us. Um, it, it challenges us to, to reevaluate these preconceptions that we have Mm -hmm. and to take a different look at our own perspectives and and viewpoints that you know that we have ingrained in ourselves and like think about things in a different way because it can't be boiled down into these binaries it can't be like this is the one thing and this is the other and this is the Mm. monster it's super complicated Mm. um it's super ambiguous um so so i think this is what i mean this is what we all need to do more right look at the different sides and try to try to see the facets um as much as that's possible yeah, let let let's jump over and do a QX. I have some more questions I want to ask. Like <laughs> what the most horrific story is. Um and I have a few other things. So if you want to check out the QA, uh it's just Patreon forward slash Nordic Mythology Podcast. Like I say, it's three pounds a month. It's ten pence a day. And you get the whole back catalogue on there as well. So there's, I, I don't know how many episodes there is on there, but we've been doing it for a while now with the guests. So there is going to be a, a bunch on there that you can listen to. And yeah, there's a, a ton of other things. Just go check it out, please. It's worth it, in my opinion, anyway. Um, and if you want to follow me, it's Daniel and Scott Farron 1 on Instagram. That's me personally, or the business at Horns of Odin, or just Nordic Mythology Podcast on all the different platforms. Perfect. Let's, yeah, let's jump in and do some uh, Q&A.